This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open sourced Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another Ruby Rogues episode. This week on our panel, we have just me. So everybody else is out and we have a very special guest. Her name is Sukhoi Huang. Sukhoi Sukhoi Huang. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, it's, it's nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, Eric. Well, to start off, tell us a little bit about yourself and, and, your, and your background. Yeah, totally. Um, I'm currently a backend engineer at Gusto. Gusto is a startup at uh, San Francisco. We do payrolls benefit in HR. It's a SaaS company. We have been about six years old. So uh, we started with a Rails monolith app and we're still a Rails monolith app. So on my day-to-day, I've been working um, on the payments engineering team. Basically, anything related to money movement is what my team does. Um, so basically, just have been working with a pretty old uh, Rails app, mostly writing Ruby day to day. How old would you say it is? The app itself? Uh, are you still running on an older version of Rails? or? Oh, we are running Rails 4, I believe. Okay. And how many Rails developers are there? there? The whole engineering team is about... 90 engineers, we are hiring and we are growing really fast, but um, we don't normally specify like Rails engineer versus like JavaScript engineer. Mostly we consider ourselves uh, full stack, but because my team is heavily backend, so we do mostly backend stuff. That's Ruby, yeah. That's great. And so how long have you been uh, programming in Ruby? Um, I would say a little bit, about three years in total. Okay, very cool. And before that? Um, this is actually my first job out of college. So I have three internships before Gusto, one with a small startup uh, at Dallas called Dialessa. It's like a software firm. Um, so I did a little bit Rails and then um, Swift with iOS and a little bit Android. And then I have two internships with Salesforce, also uh, in San Francisco, one in the performance engineering team, another one with a IoT team. It's kind of like a startup within Salesforce. I see. So why Ruby after all of that, after all those internships with different languages, why did you land on Ruby? Totally. Um, I actually learned Ruby for my first internship. And the feeling I got is that when I write Ruby, it's a lot like, it feels a lot like talking to a friend. It's just so descriptive and just so fun and easy to use. Yeah, I found that as well. In fact, um, recently I've been going through a transition, mm-hmm. which, as I understand, you are as well of moving um, away from Ruby more into Elixir. And I find myself 
reaching back to to what I find comfortable, which is Ruby, because Elixir is so much more strict on how you write things. Um, it makes it a little bit more difficult at times. So I do want to delve into that. But you wrote a really cool article on how to contribute to Ruby. What, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, totally. So earlier this year, um, I was invited to an event uh, in UK by Cookpack. It's called Ruby Hack Day. Basically, they brought together a bunch of uh, a few Ruby developers and a few Ruby core contributors, including Matt himself. So the contributors that attended are Matt and Koichi, who is now currently working on concurrency on Ruby. And um, also, I, think, I don't know if I can pronounce his name right, Yosuke. He's working on type tracking related stuff in Ruby currently. So this is an event that brings a few contribute uh, Ruby core contributors and a few Ruby developers together and show us how to, um, how to develop Ruby, basically. It's a pretty how, cool event, yeah. Hmm? It was that, so I know that you spent a little bit of time with Matt's on that. Do you know roughly um, uh, how, how they construct Ruby? Can you kind of enlighten us on that? And also, uh, tell us about your experience with Matt's. Yeah, totally. I would say Matt's is definitely uh, very friendly. So. After the event, um, we traveled together from Bristol to Bath um, for dinner, um, for a speaker dinner for the Bath Ruby conference. And I was able to uh, very luckily get to chat with Matt during the trip. And Matt's really friendly, Matt was uh, very friendly. And I basically asked him lots of questions um, that I have related to Ruby, such as like how he think of type checking and where Ruby is going. But to answer your first questions about how um, Ruby, like the, the core team behind it, how they work. Basically, I think they use, um, I'd say it's Matt and the core team, they have a vision. For example, for Rails 3, they mainly focus on performance, concurrency, and um, type-related type stuff. So they basically have a vision and they're trying to achieve it for the, the next big releases. Um, at the meantime, they have those weekly meetings where people get together either remotely or uh, in Japan. But one thing they do really well is they document each meeting. Um, it's all available in, let me try to find the, the website. But they document all the meeting and um, document in forms of Google Docs. So everyone who's interested to see how they made decisions in terms of how, as detailed as how they name a new method, you can find all the discussions in those um, Google Docs. So I really appreciate that they're trying to keep all the decision-making as open as possible. So um, for people who is not able to attend the meeting can also take a look and see how the considerations they put into making those decisions. So you mentioned that the three focuses that they have on Ruby 3 are um, performance, con concurrency, and like a typing system, a type system. Mm -hmm. how, yeah. Let's just on those, do you have any more information on like how far along that is or what are your thoughts on that? As far as performance, I understand. As far as the type system, I think there's like pros and cons to that. And I've heard arguments both ways. I personally think it's great because it allows, you know, you to know exactly like what's coming and, you know, it's preventative coding, right? Preventative mm -hmm, errors. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, finally, the concurrency. But the concurrency story I'm just curious about, and that's what led me to Elixir, is the concurrency aspect of it. How likely do you see them becoming comparable to languages like Elixir or other, you know, core, like natively concurrent languages? 
Um, to be honest, I, I haven't done much research into how Ruby is doing, uh, how Ruby is trying to achieve concurrency currently. But in my understanding, it's really hard for any um, object-oriented language to achieve the same level of concurrency as a functional programming language is able to do. Um, because they are all thread-based, um, in my understanding, it just if you as long as you have objects that points to like the shared memory by different objects, it's it's really hard to get concurrency right. I think that's one of the reasons why Jose is um, Elisa's creator. Jose originally started to create um, Elisa. Originally, he was uh, a core contributor for the Wales team and also looking into multi-threading and concurrency-related issue. And the deeper he dived into it, the deeper he realized how hard it is, and he started to look into other programming paradigm. That's how he settled with um, functional programming languages and started to building Elisa. So in my understanding, it may, it's, it's gonna be hard, but there are still a lot of work can improve and uh, provide more support around it. But whoever is trying to use, a con uh, like trying to leverage concurrency or multi-threading, it will be, I think you need to, a lot of things you need to still be careful about. But there are definitely like rooms for improvement and leverage concurrency and multi-threading and multi-core, all those things. So based on, based on what you just said, um, mm -hmm. you see Ruby having a very long-term future as one of the primary web-based languages. Totally, yeah. Just seeing how many um, startups or small companies being able to ship like big projects um, that impacts like, so many people with a small team, that's totally one thing that Ruby and the Rails community that um, has the biggest advantage, being able to ship fast and um, leverage a small team and build a, pro a product that have big impacts. I think that's one of the things um, Matt himself believes in as well, because in his keynote for the Best Ruby conference, he um, emphasized like the, the thing he believes in is like have faster execution and actually write less code and build a smaller team. So I don't see Matt being a big believer into having a big team. He's like much more aligned with DHH in terms of having a small team that does a lot and not necessarily with, even with lots of code. So definitely uh, Ruby has, is not going anywhere and it has been like made developers life a lot easier and um, just basically made us more impactful with small team and small, less amount of code. Yeah, that's that's true. Um, you know, the, I built my career. I've been programming for about twenty years now, and half of that was in Ruby. Wow! And so every now and then, I'd kind of go off the path and try something else, and then I'd always come back. Then I'd go off the path and try something else, and always mm -hmm. come back. But I found that if you are disciplined enough to kind of stick to the Rails way and stick to how how the leaders are doing it, mm -hmm. it becomes a very scalable, very approachable way to, to build software. Um, and I, I stand behind you on that. I think it is around for the long term. I do think that they have their challenges, mm -hmm. but um, there are some really smart people working on it. Yeah, totally. Um, there are a lot of smart and nice people working on it. But one thing I would like to point out is that um, the philosophy of having small team that build a product that have big impact. Um, that philosophy is not so much just software development, though. It's also a philosophy on the business level. You need to get buy-in from um, the whole company to believe in. You don't necessarily have to scale the team so much in order to have a big product or in order to enable the company to grow for the next five years or so. If you look at it, like DHH is a big 
DHH being the the creator of Rails, he's a big believer in small teams, and the team behind Book uh, Basecamp is pretty small. But nowadays, a lot of company out there, especially in Silicon Valley, people are really growth focused. And one assumption people have is that if you want to grow your company, you may also want to grow your team pretty quickly. But as developers, we all know developers don't scale very well. <laughs> and but if the business don't inherit the same mindset, meaning you don't actually need to grow your development team so much. Um, instead, they go to the other routes. Like we want to fight our two S for the next year. Let's also two S our development team. Then you kind of run into a lot of troubles in terms of your code base um, may not be as well maintained, and just a lot of things that both. Matt and DHS doesn't really consider day-to-day, -day, you will run into trouble of those things. One example may be, um, we find it kind of hard to um, refactor Ruby code. One reason being it's a dynamic programming language. There are not lots of good toolings around it as the toolings we have around Java, because Java is like study type. Uh, it's a lot easier to build those refactoring tools around it. and. As your team grow, as your code base grow, if you are not be careful, not careful to have like proper testing and all that, refactoring a Ruby code base can be quite challenging. And that's not something um, I don't think that's something on top of Matt's mind or um, DHS's mind, to be honest, because I think they deal with smaller teams on a daily basis, so they they may not understand the pain of like having a bigger team or having a pretty uh, large. Uh, legacy code base that have been many years long. So you run into challenge into in those areas. Do you think they should feel that pain or should have an understanding of that? I'd say um, the first thing is it all goes to back, go back to the philosophy like Matt really wants to emphasize like for my, for my reason, uh, by, by our conversation, he really wants to emphasize like developer happiness and having smaller team. Um, so in order for them to kind of have more focus in terms of the toolings and supporting and solving problems around large team using Rails code, um, it's gonna be a, a shift, a mindset shift to, for them to see, even though a bigger or medium-sized team, maybe it's not as aligned as their philosophy, but there are a lot of developers out there are facing those issues. Um, another thing I found quite interesting is that by talking to those core contributors, I realized none of them actually code in Ruby in a day-to-day -day basics because they, they're contributing to the Ruby source code base, which is um, C. So they deal with C a lot more than actually use Ruby in their day-to-day -day code base. So that's something I find pretty interesting. And that's also, mass, uh, that's also why Matt goes to lots of Ruby conferences and talk to a lot of uh, Ruby developers to get a sense uh, of like how Ruby is going, if Ruby is solving their problem, things like that. But I find it pretty interesting that um, many core contributors don't use Ruby them, uh, itself. But of course, there are a lot of other Ruby contributors use them too, but um, it's just interesting to see that some of them don't use Ruby on a day-to-day basis. Hmm. That's like being a, an auto manufacturer that doesn't drive a car, right? <laughs> Somebody working there and yeah. doesn't actually have a car themselves. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, it's very interesting. Just to be fair, though, I asked Matt why he said he would rather to improve the language and let Ruby developer to enjoy the language more, other than himself enjoying it but don't have enough time to contribute to the language. 
I did have the pleasure of meeting him uh, a handful mm-hmm. of years back. And you're right. He is just a, a fantastic individual, very giving, very humble. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's it's it was a pretty cool experience meeting him. I'm pretty jealous that you got to sit in a train with him <laughs> for that long and and that. So let's let's talk a little bit about the type checking. Um, mm-hmm. I know that um, that is a feature that they're pushing for Rails uh, Ruby three, which mm-hmm. who knows how far out it is. What benefits come from that that you can see? Mm. Um, I would say the main reason Max wants to support some kind of type checking. Um, is that to have compilers or, sub, or something similar to detect uh, errors at compile time. Um, so that, I think I would say that's one of the um, the benefit of having a type checking system, especially has, as the, the app grows, the, uh, the team grows, uh, having that is gonna be really uh, beneficial to shorten the feedback loop if something is wrong, you know immediately, so you don't have to wait for text uh, for the user to tell you what's wrong. Um, I actually checked with Matt on the type checking system. He envisioned quite a bit during the trip. It's really interesting to hear um, his point of view. So his vision for, uh, he has this vision for a future compiler. He believes that in the future, uh, programmers don't have to tell the compiler about types, but the compiler just can talk, uh, detect what the types should be based on uh, a compile time. He doesn't have a clear approach to how we can accomplish that, accomplish that yet, but he's like pretty convinced that that's how the future is gonna be like. Um, he's, he's thinking maybe it's by the text you wrote or by some other things that the compiler can tell what the types of the program should be. Um, but he's pretty convinced that the future, in the future, compiler don't, ha- you don't have to tell the compiler what it should be, but the compiler just know. And that's actually one reason why um, he strongly opposed the idea of actually having code uh, within your, along with your code base that declares the type, for example, um, let, let me back off a bit. So that's why he strongly opposed the idea of declaring type in real program, um, because he believed that once you add it there, it's really hard to remove and the future compiler comes in, then all those Ruby code now is not compatible with that future compiler. So he think that having, yeah, having a separate file to declare it is, is uh, acceptable is still not ideal, but but so far he find it uh, maybe that's the only way. Either having a separate file along with some common in the real business code, but definitely not like have some programmatic code in your business code that declare types for you. Are they are they prototyping this at all? Yeah, yeah. Um, this is a, a gem or a library started by someone that's not currently on the Ruby core team, but Matt, I believe Max is thinking about bringing him uh, in the core team as well. But the library is called Steep, just S-T-E-E-P. Um, if you Google Steep or Steep Ruby type, you should be able to find it. Um, so this is a, pro- uh, a prototype where to use it, you need to have a separate file to declare your types. And the core team is looking into use that as a prototype to see if that's something they can do. That's awesome. And yeah, I believe Yusoke um, is is the um, the core team member looking into this. Very good. Now I I know I watched your video of the conference talk that you recently gave at the Taiwan Ruby X, and it was at an Elixir conference. 
And you talked about, <laughs> it, you talked about um, the bugs and how many bugs you've built ha, that you've created over the years. And I found that interesting because you said, I've, I've done this many bugs probably, and it was probably, what, 40 bugs. And I'm thinking to myself, I have at least 5,000. I mean, it'd be like ants on that page for me. But how do you think uh, this type checking system might help in that area? Yeah, totally. So um, to give the listeners some context, the talk is about how, because I'm working in the payments team and we literally, the code right is moving people's money. So each bug may actually cost lots of money. That's why we have been extremely um, careful and follow best practice and have come up with a set of best practice that we follow uh, in terms to make sure that we handle link all those money correctly. And um, Go back to the type trapping system. One best practice we follow is called um, defensive programming. And we use a gem called contracts. What it does is um, it allows you to declare, um, basically for each method, you can declare the, um, the type of the input and the type of the output. Um, it's really straightforward. It's just a two lines of code, uh, one lines of code before each method. And the way it works is that it's, it doesn't, um, detect your errors in compile time. What it does is uh, if your tags or any of your real code that goes through that method but doesn't uh, obey that contract, it will throw an error immediately. And um, that has been extremely helpful to us because sometimes uh, with, with the help of this gem, um, if some, someone um, use our code that doesn't pass um, an argument that obey what the program expects, um, it will throw an error like as early as possible. So it makes debugging and caching error much more easier. Now go back to the type checking um, topic we are talking about. I think if we have something that's built in from Ruby, that's gonna, um, basically we don't have to use a separate gen and we may not even have to think about it. It will just support out of the gate. Um, I think for something as, uh, if your program is very, um, have a big impact and I have a really, it's a, critical part of your program as for us is like moving money, then you want something similar. That makes sense. Um, so let's let's uh, shift the tables around a little bit. I want to talk about your your move slowly from Ruby over to the Elixir world. What's your first impression of that? Like let's say um, you you're you're in for a little bit, a month later, like Tell me about your first impression of Elixir, how it compares to your Ruby experience and some of the pros and cons that you can see out of the gate. Mm-hmm, totally. Um, it's funny because I actually decided to try, try out Elixir because uh, I went to that conference in Taiwan. It's a Ruby plus Elixir conference. So it's like part of the program is Ruby, part of the program is Elixir. And I got to talk to a lot of Elixir developers during that um, during the conference and hear their perspective and then that can be interested into trying it out. So um, I'm still a Ruby developer and I mostly just play around with Elisa um, in my free time after work. What, um, so the, about my impressions of, of Elisa, I'd say it's really nice to see um, both Elisa and Ruby come from the same root. Like one of the philo- common philosophy they share is that Ruby is really believing in developers' um, happiness. And Elixir, one of the core focus is about improving developers' uh, productivity. So having a use, playing around with a language where its main focus is to serve the developer community, uh, that itself feels really nice. 
another thing I would say, the, of course, the big difference between Ruby is and Elixir is that Ruby is an object-oriented programming language, um, and Elixir is a function more like functional programming language. And just trying out uh, the functional way of thinking is is quite fascinating because originally I'm quite a fan of OO programming. Um, Originally, my thought was that it makes a lot of sense if you think of the world as different objects and they interact with each other and each object um, is very well encapsulated about what they can do and what they know. It just made sense for me from that, uh, that mental model. But as I um, play, around, play around with the functional paradigm a little bit more, what I feel is that the biggest difference um, is, is that I don't have to think about responsibility so much. Earlier, um, back in the OO world, especially in a big code base, when I try to add a new method, I sometimes have to think about which objects should know about it, which objects should own that responsibility. And sometimes it's quite hard to define um, to, and to allocate that responsibility correctly. And if you don't allocate it correctly, it may be quite hard to move around and refactor that, that part of that, that method you want to add later. Because if you attach to an object and you later realize, oh, actually, um, it shouldn't be attached to this object. Then you have to go through all the code to uh, move it out. And also it may be too deeply integrated with that object. Then there's just too many code depend on that method being on that object itself. But on the functional way, I don't think so much about who is responsible for what, but it's more like, I just want to get this thing done. And um, I can just write a method to get it done because the contract between method is so, simple and also strict. It just like pass me some data and I give you back some data and all of the methods within living in the functional programming world knows that we are, it's immutable. We are not changing anything. You have the confidence of, I don't have to think about responsibility so much. I can just think about how I want to get this thing done that I want to call out. And in, later on, if you want to move around method, it's not so hard at all because everything I, like functions, um, first-class citizens in the functional programming world, you can move around pretty easily. They just like um, group by different modules and then you just, just move one method from, an, uh, from one module to another one. That seems pretty, um, not as over, don't have as a big overhead as the ways you have to do in the OO world. So that's one thing I really, um, I find quite like a light bulb comes up. So like, oh, that's actually quite interesting. And, um, one big reason I want to try out Elixir is more as a use it as an opportunity to try out functional programming. People say a lot of um, the conversation I have with people who move to Elixir is a lot of time they say in the beginning um, they would have to spend some time to get themselves um, warmed up with Elixir and the learning curve may be a little bit steep, but once they fully get ran with it and get warmed up with it, they find themselves like even more productive than using Ruby even though they may have five or 10 years of Ruby experience, but they find themselves more productive in Ruby. That's something that caught me, caught my interest a lot, um, just being able to be more productive and do more with less time. So that's another reason I want to look into um, Elixir as well. Deploy more, pay less with DigitalOcean the simplest all-in-one cloud computing platform for developers. Scale and run cloud applications faster and more efficiently with effortless administration tools to robust compute, flexible configurations, networking services, real-time alerts, and rapid provisioning while enjoying industry-leading price to performance with a flat pricing structure across all global data center regions at any usage volume. 
Spend more time building better web apps and less time worrying about managing infrastructure with DigitalOcean. Build your next app on DigitalOcean. Get started with a free $100 credit at do.co slash rubyrogues. Uh, a couple of questions kind of came to me as, as you were talking. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask them both because I'm going to forget them. The first <laughs> thing is um, being more productive. I'm, I'm going to say that's, that's a little bit hard to swallow Mm-hmm. that they would be more productive when the Ruby community's community, the, 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 the gems and libraries and, and open source code out there that makes building applications so rapid mm-hmm. um, doesn't quite exist yet in the Elixir community. So I'm just, I guess it's more of an observation where I'm like, because I've heard that too. Yeah, and yeah, I just wonder, like, how is that possible? And in my experience, it has not been that case yet. Mm-hmm. Um, however, I can see like the stability of what you build is is more long term. So perhaps maybe that has to do with it. And the other question I had was uh, regarding the functional functional coding versus object oriented coding, and that single you know that sense of responsibility and where it goes. Mm-hmm. I guess my, my the only question I really have, aside from the comment prior, is. Um, does that lead you to more disorganized code? Whereas in Ruby, if you do have objects with single responsibility, you know where everything goes, you know how it should go. How does that impact your code structure and your your locations of functions in Elixir when you're moving away from that? Yeah, um, both are great questions. And I actually think about those questions myself as well. So let's talk about the first one related to productivity. Um, I myself haven't spent enough time with Elisa to feel that I'm more productive in Elisa. I sometimes I still, when I call in Elisa, I still get the feeling that I know exactly what I need to do, get uh, how exactly to achieve this task if I can call in Ruby. But with Elisa, I need to think about it and and all that. And you, you brought up a good point about the, the Ruby community with all these gems and this um, all this support from the community is fantastic. And that's one of the critics, uh, criticize I hear a lot about Elisa or the community um, is that you don't have that many supports. You have to kind of um, rebuild the view for yourself if you, even if you just want to do a simple thing. Um, I personally don't have experience using Elisa in a commercial app setting. Right now, just myself playing around with it. But I do hear some people who use it and I ask them these questions. And um, one person who told me is that they do run into a few issues with um, non-existent or underdeveloped library in the Elixir ecosystem. But they said that uh, once they got used to the type checking and pattern matching, he think that uh, it is still a net productivity gain. I think in the end of the day, there are pros and cons. The cons may be you lack those libraries, but because um, the functional paradigm or the type checking makes you, you write code and recode a lot faster and maybe even help you to develop a code structure that's a lot more scalable. And if you sum this up, maybe for some people, it's a, a net uh, productivity gain. You know, I see a parallel there with um, all of these front-end frameworks versus um, Elm. Mm-hmm. So Elm is also a, a, a very functional based yeah. uh, front end framework, but it's not even a framework really. Um, 
there's not a lot of, as far as I understand, there's not a huge community around building Elm plugins or whatever you call them. And I, mm-hmm. fully admitting, I'm not an Elm programmer, but I believe one of one of our panelists on this show or the next or the Elixir show, I can't remember which, but um, is is heavy into Elm. And same type of response I hear from them, where once you go Elm, once you start using Elm, it it really makes it impossible to like move out of anything else. And I'm, I'm wondering if it's, it's, it's very similar where you go into this parallel mindset where mm-hmm. now everything makes sense. You don't have to have this, this uh, cognitive over, overhead yeah, totally. to like, to like maintain this project. All you need to do is say, okay, what's my input? What's my output? And the whole thing is pretty much pure functions. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I totally see the value in that uh, for sure. Um, we should probably yeah. stop talking about Elixir since we're <laughs> on a Ruby show. <laughs> if you are interested in Elixir, though, I'm also on a podcast called Elixir Mix. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can find us at devchat.tv. So anyway, I just had to plug that real quick. <laughs> I'm actually a fan <laughs> of that show as well. I listen to both of your shows. Oh, good. Good, good, good. I'm glad. All right. Let's talk about contributions to Mm -hmm. uh, open source. Mm -hmm. What's your experience with that? I know that some of your notes show that um, you do have some experience in in open source contribution. Let's let's talk about that. Like what what got you started in that? What have you done? And and what's your overall thoughts on it? Yeah, totally. Um, It's funny that how I'm starting to go to different conferences this year and I've been to three so far. Each of them have different impact on me. The latest one being the Taiwan one kind of introduced me to um, Elisa. And the second one is actually the one introduced me to the open source, uh, open source community. The second one is the one in Bath UK, the one where we, where I met Matt and a lot of other Ruby commu- uh, contributor, and there are a lot of other open source contributor within the Rails ecosystem are there, like contributors for uh, Rails and for Ruby and other uh, popular library. Um, to be honest, I don't have too many open source contributing experience. I actually just started this year. Um, the reason being, I always feel that you have to be a rock star developer in order to contribute to open source library, especially the, the popular ones that so many companies and developers depend on, like Rails or Ruby or any programming languages, languages or web framework. So I always feel maybe I'm just not up for the task. But after talking to all those uh, open source uh, software contributors, a common theme I realized is that they just kind of started somewhere. They just poke around with the library and they use it themselves and they enjoy using it. And then they see small improvement they can make. And then they just submit pull requests and you get accepted. And then they kind of get into the loop of just keep doing it. Um, maybe not thinking I have to carve out 10% of my time to dedicate it to it. But it's more like a side hobby. It's like, oh, uh, the same way as you may think, let me check out what new musics are there. Let me try out that new song and see if it, if it fits my ear. It's very similar for them in the beginning. They were like, um, maybe in a Sunday afternoon, you don't have anything to do. You think about, oh, actually there's one improvement I can make. Or let me check, off, check out that issue pages and see any small tickets I can pick up. So the common thing I found is that they all started really small and gradually over the years, they become a core contributor. That just made the whole thing less intimidating to me. And... Um, so far, my experience into contributing to open source um, ecosystem are mainly just contributing to Elixir. Um, it's actually a funny story because I also, when I was playing around with Elixir and then I realized, oh, this is probably a bug. And then I just uh, have 
create a thread in the Elisa community, um, the, the forum online. And there's like, I think this is a bug or something like that. And then the next day I saw someone tweeted there's a new issue come out in the Elisa GitHub uh, project that says, this is a bug uh, it's, and it's a starter ticket. Someone can just take it. And because um, I woke up a little bit late that day, someone already claimed that ticket. I was like, oh, damn it. I should have, I would, would be able to claim that ticket if uh, it seems like a low hanging fruit. And then, but because of that, and, and then the question comes in, so I wonder if there are other low hanging fruit that I can pick. So I look into the, the issue log and then it's really well organized. Uh, it, I think it's the same for a lot of other open source library now, nowadays that hosting GitHub. They, they tell you which are red, which ones are ready for contributing and which ones are ready for uh, starters or intermediate. So I just found a few, um, pick one and then trying to play around with it. I'd say the biggest takeaway that surprised me is that it's not that much different than your day-to-day -day work as a software developer. It's, it's quite similar. It's like you see a ticket, um, it's either ask you to add this small feature or ask you to change the behavior to fix that bug. In the beginning, you are probably not familiar with the code base. So you're kind of trying to locate which code, which part of the code exactly does that. And with some investigation, you realize, oh, this is the part. And then you try to see why it's not doing what you want it to do. So you put a debugger or you play around in the console and, and try out different test cases. And then after, sometimes you kind of get really familiar with the context and you know what's wrong. And most of the case, you when, when you understand why, what, how it's doing, what it's currently doing, it's pretty easy to just make the change you want. So it's really similar to my day-to-day -day work. Um, in my work, there's something we call um, Viking Master, which is basically an on-call rotation where an engineer go in and fix tickets reported either internally or externally by customer. A lot of times you pick a ticket and the code that, does, that is related to the ticket is not written by you, it's written by some other developer in the past time. And you kind of just dive into that code that you're not familiar with and spend some time with it. After a while, you get familiar with it and you know how to fix it. So I would say um, if you were, you were like me who was really intimidated by the open the whole idea of the open source com uh, software, um, just give it a try. Um, it's not so much different than your day-to-day -day job as a developer. And if you are not a professional developer yet, I would say um, contributing to open source library is a great way to level up your debugging skill and also learn the best practice from those open source projects. Uh, yeah, I couldn't say better myself. I've over the years, I think that uh, I, I started off very nervous about con contributing because I've never felt that I'm a, a great developer. And to this day, I still don't feel like I'm a great developer. I'm, I'm moderate at best. Um, but the thing that I do know is um, these maintainers, these people uh, maintaining these open source projects are overloaded. Mm. So, and one of the things that uh, really does help is going through and cleaning up um, you know, old issues that uh, need to probably be retested and say, is this still an issue? Mm -hmm. um, an experience that I've had, um, and it actually led me to being one of the uh, documentation maintainers of Ember. I'm no longer that, but but I was at a conference and Tom Dale was there and he mentioned that uh, he was showing the docs and, oh, that's a bug. We need to fix that. And so like right there during the talk, I, I pulled their repo. I made the fix. I submitted a PR. 
And after that, they're like, wow, that was really nice. Let's, let's get you to do some more. <laughs> and I found like, uh, and I was uh, one of the developers on the Grails project um, mm-hmm. in their documentation site as well, where um, I just said, hey, I, I want to help. I don't know how I can help, but I want to help. Uh, and I just started pitching in, and eventually they said, "Yeah, here, help help build this," and I helped build their um, their website. So, being a good developer, let me let me rephrase that: being a, a, an experienced, advanced developer is not a requirement for working on open source. Um, it's actually a, an excellent way to become better because all of a sudden you're getting feedback on code that you c- contribute um, from from the experts. Mm-hmm. So it's a wonderful way to do it. But Mm -hmm. if anybody is looking to get into open source and help, uh, I recommend starting off with the documentation, Mm -hmm. documentation and helping there. Um, My final example, and this is just a habit that I get into, like uh, I recently tried to figure out how to deploy a Phoenix app to, to Heroku. And I found that there was a discrepancy in their documentation. So I... I pulled down the the Phoenix repo. I modified their documentation and I submitted a PR with an explanation and they accepted it. So it's pretty cool because like I'm a, I have a contribution to the Phoenix library and yet it was just something that like I felt it should be there but nobody would have nobody would have thought of it unless they ran into the use case that I ran into. Mm-hmm. So anyway, there's many ways to get into that. Um and yeah, totally. uh, yeah, I would so, say, especially if you're concerned about your own experience being, I mean, not have that many years of programming experience. So, and then you worry that you may not um, be skillful enough to contribute. I would say being a not so senior developer actually gives you some unique advantage because you come with a fresh eyes. A lot of things people take it for granted, like how they have been doing programming for so long. They don't realize something actually doesn't make sense. But because you come with a fresh eyes, you may ask questions that you think is stupid, but actually get people start thinking. Or you see that missing method that people already get used to uh, a different way to doing things, but you see that, oh, it's missing. If we uh, have a different method here, our life will be much easier. So these are the, the very unique perspectives that you can bring in and contribute to the community. And I believe all community needs that, no matter how mature or how, or how young it is. Um, fresh perspective is always something that's very valuable. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so you have a blog post that you wrote, um, which is basically a letter to the self-doubting developer. And I found that fascinating. Uh, I think we've all been through, we've all gone mm-hmm. through this imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. Tell, tell us a little bit about that. You, you go over some lessons that you've learned and can you share those? Yeah, definitely. Um, I actually wanted to bring it up when we were earlier talking about experienced developer versus not so experienced or, or best developer versus uh, intermediate. Um, I'd say just the first lessons I learned is to realize learning how to program or on your journey of becoming a better developer is really similar to how you build muscles. Because um, when, if you think about it, when you build muscle, you may go to the gym and you, you do those workouts and you feel the pain, the sore in your muscle. And, and you just take a, a few days of break, maybe to let your muscle to grow and then you become stronger and then you go back there and then you kind of hurt yourself again to break those muscles down so it can rebuild itself and become stronger. It's very similar in the programming sense. Uh, when you learn to program uh, on a journey to become a better developer, a lot of times you feel that it doesn't make sense and 
you get stuck and then your, your, your brain literally hurts. And, and then, but as you stick along with the problem longer, it's starting to make sense. And then it, that moment is clear. And, and then you realize, oh, that's why. And it makes a lot of sense after you realize um, what exactly is happening. And then you kind of level up a little bit compared to yourself um, before that challenge. And the process is very similar. And then you kind of go back to a, a, a different challenge, maybe a bigger one, and then your brain hurts again. And then things doesn't make sense. And you're starting to question everything. And as you stick longer as well, um, you gain more context around that problem. You learn some new things and then it makes sense again. And then you level up. So the cycle is really similar. You started with a, a bigger challenge that is um, bigger than maybe a little bit bigger than your current skill set and then um, your brain hurts and then um, things doesn't make sense you're starting to question a lot of things but then you move on to the next phase if you spend more time in, in the challenge and you learn more things and things make sense again then you move on to the next challenge so it's a, very similar to building muscles but one thing that is lacking is that when you build muscle when you go to the gym people tell you that that's what you should expect you should expect your your muscle hurts, you should expect that you feel tired, you, you may feel frustrated. But when you learn program, especially if you are not um, from uh, in, in, like, surrounded by people who is also learning program, you may feel that maybe it's just me. And then you start questioning if, is it because I'm not good enough or things like that? Um, but people don't tell you that, actually that's what you should expect. You should expect things doesn't make sense and you should expect your, your brain hurts and you should expect um, a period of time you're just kind of struggling with that challenge with that problem you're trying to solve. I think once you realize that it's actually common, that's how you learn and how to level up your skill, um, you will have less self-doubt. It's not so much about you, about your um, about your genes, about how smart you are. It's just, just the process that all of us go through. Yeah, uh, the, the, the brain hurting thing, I, I remember I would, especially when you're learning a new language, uh, I, would, I would end the day and I would go talk to my wife. I'm like, I am dead. I, my brain hurts so bad and yeah. <laughs> not something I enjoy, but you're right. It's like a muscle and you just got to keep on working at it. And it can also atrophy if you don't. Mm -hmm. so, um, one, one other uh, question I had is you went three years ago um, from, from just barely starting the program. And as I understand it, you got six job offers from some of the biggest companies in the world. Tell us about that process. Yeah, totally. Um, so I graduated about two years ago out of college and um, my university is called the University of Texas at Dallas. So I, I received like great education from there, but it's not like those famous CS program like CMU or Stanford and anything like that. So I would say I went through the whole journey from in the beginning it's really hard to get anyone's attention to the end. Um, before my graduation, I was lucky enough, uh, lucky enough to receive all those great offers from those great companies. Um, the journey, I would say, it's just a lot about building your skill sets and having proof to show those companies um, what you are capable of. And that's why I went to three different internships and learned a lot there and also um, building side projects along the way, um, just to demonstrate that I am capable of learning things on my own. I'm capable of building these apps and basically convey something from an idea to a final product that is uh, people can use. 
And so that's one side of the story being you go through the journey of building up your story to show people you are capable, you are a capable developer. And the other side of the story, of course, is like once you get your resume into the door, um, you need to pass those programming interviews. And that's not the, my favorite thing in the world, but it's uh, something we all have to face. And basically, I just spend a lot of time preparing for those uh, interview questions and uh, eventually get myself uh, good enough at solving those questions and um, just pass uh, lots of the interviews. Do you have any tips on where people can go to prepare for those interviews? Um, yeah. So just a disclaimer, I'm not um, advocate for the current way we do programming interviews being like either by boarding or have a coding challenge that's somewhat um, disconnect from real world programming challenge. But that's the way it is. And uh, it's going to take a while for the industries to change or come up with a better way to evaluate uh, our skills. Um, with that being said, um, that's the status quote. And if you want to get a job, it's very likely that you have to go through one of those coding interviews. Uh, one website I find quite helpful is called Lead Code. It's L-E-E-T code. Um, has a lot of coding challenge there. And what I did is just I basically categorized them based on the type of the skill they are uh, testing and just focus on one category for a period of time until I feel that I'm quite familiar with uh, maybe uh, recursion and then move on to the next category, maybe dynamic programming. When I started, there were only about 200 questions. Last time I checked, there were like 800. So <laughs> it's gone crazy, all the coding interview game. Another thing I can recommend is, um, is um, exorcism. Yes, yes. And I think exorcism is also a great way to learn some of those exercises that might come up. Um, so we're coming up on an hour. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to talk about before we get to picks? Um, great question. I would say I would like to go back to the self-doubting developer topic about imposter syndrome. One thing okay. I also want to emphasize is that don't focus so much on um, how good you are or how how uh, how unskilled you are, because no matter how good you are, there are people better than you, and there are people that can learn from you. So um, it's not a binary thing. You are good. You are either good or not good. But it just uh, put yourself into a spectrum, and there's always opportunity for you to grow and there's always people can learn from you. So instead of focusing on yourself, just focus on your craft. If you think maybe I'm not so good, ask yourself like which other areas that you can improve and just maybe um, it's system design and then go learn on those topics and focus on the code you write, but not so much um, how good you are or how, yeah. I would say focus on your craft, but not yourself can help you um, Stop worrying about if you are good enough. That's great advice. Great advice. We can all take it. Okay. Um, so let's mm -hmm. go to picks. Do you run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere. Available from any device. Uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android, and all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now. 
and it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. So I'm going to go ahead and share mine. I got a couple of picks. Uh, mm-hmm. The first one I have is a company that I work with called Gitcoin. And Gitcoin is, we talked a little bit about um, contributing to open source and how it does build you up. Well, what Gitcoin does is they provide a way for developers to actually generate revenue while contributing to open source. Wow. So it's, it's a pretty neat system. Basically, you go there, they have a list of issues that you can take in all these different languages. And once you complete them and submit a PR, you can get paid out. So it's a nice way to, to get involved in open source and in the same time, generate a little bit of money for yourself. So that's my first pick. And my second pick is, I, so I had a conversation this morning. I, I meet a buddy every, every Tuesday for lunch. And uh, I'm sorry, not for lunch, like for, for early morning coffee. And when we met... I told him uh, uh, this this habit that I've got into at night. So my wife and I, we 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 you know put the kids down, then we go to bed, and it's it's our time to relax, right? It's our time to mm-hmm. kind of unwind and relax and let the day kind of go away and just enjoy the evening where it's really quiet and everything. And and I found a form of meditation that I didn't expect to find in cross stitching. So oh. I'm like I'm like fanatic about cross stitching now, where I'm I'm creating like designs and I can I can uh, basically all night long when my little fingers are working back and forth inside this uh, this cross stitching and building these fun little designs that are like super geeky right I'm creating mm-hmm. um, I'm creating uh, cross stitches of uh, of Bob's Burgers characters <laughs> I mean no, it, silly stuff but there's something to be said about just letting your hands do the work and at the end of the day you have something that you built that you can look at Mm-hmm. But it's so meditative to just sit there and just go back and forth in the cross stitch and just just let your hands build and your mind doesn't really need to work at all. Wow, that so, sounds fantastic. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. Absolutely. It's a lot of fun. And and eventually once I'm done, I'll share my cross stitches on on uh, on on a website. So anyway, I recommend it. Yeah. Well, thanks. Yeah, thanks for the pics. I, I love both of your your pics. Um I'm definitely gonna check out how you can contribute to open source and also earn some um, side income. That sounds really interesting. And I'm looking into getting like the meditation practice as well. So thanks for recommending that. I'm definitely going to check that out. You bet. So um, for my pick, I'd say the first pick is um, a, a free course online uh, provided by Stanford. It's called Human Behavioral Biology. Um, I actually only watched the first uh lecture so far, but I really love it. One thing that um, he talk, he talk, the professor talks a lot about in the first lecture is about categorical thinking. I find that fascinating. He spent about 40 minutes just talking about categorical thinking and why it may not be the best idea to tackle some problem, basically the pitfalls. So categorical thinking is something human naturally do. We basically categorize things that helps us easier to process all those information and when things come, we just see which category they fit in and how we should solve that problem. But there are a lot of pitfalls being, if something that doesn't fit into the category very well, our brain may not pick it up easily. We may overlook it. So I would definitely recommend people to check out the first lecture of the course um, named Human Behavioral Biology. A lot of things I found 
is quite relatable to how we develop software, being how we think about edge case, how we approach this um, design hierarchy and things like that. Um, the way he talks about how to avoid categorical thinking is really applicable to our day-to-day -day job, actually. So I find that fascinating. And my second pick being a course in uh, Udemy. It's called Minute Habit Mastery. Basically, it's the idea that you build a habit um, not by committing to maybe exercise one hour per day. That's something quite daunting and hard to stick to, but maybe just one push up per day. And that's as, um, so small that's almost laughable. But um, in the course, it's, uh, it goes a lot into the psychology behind it. And I find that fascinating. Um, learn a lot about how we think about things, um, how humans think about things. Actually, it's not so much about how the task, um, how complicated itself it is, but how the perceived complexity we see. So I believe a lot of us have the trouble of procrastination. And sometimes it's not so hard about actually get a job done, but it's about sitting yourself down and start working on it. But once you start working on it, it's not, you start getting into the flow and enjoy doing it. But um, getting yourself sit down and start doing that task is the, 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 the tough part. And building those mini habits to get yourself started and then you can decide if you want to continue or not. I find it's a pretty good strategy. So I recommend people to check out, check it out, just learn about the psychology behind it. I, I find it quite helpful in combating uh, procrastination and also starting to build all those habits um, I want to build for a long time. Love it. I've actually uh, bookmarked that course. I'm going to end up buying that. I can definitely use better habits. <laughs> yeah, um, um, habits are great things. Yes, they are. So uh, where can our listeners find you? On your website, Twitter? What accounts do you have? Where can they, where can they reach out to you? Totally. Um, I blog regularly on the topic of Ruby on, and software development and anything I learned at work. Um, and my personal blog is called suhui.io and it's spelled as S-I-H-U-I.io. So people can go there and check out some of the um, article I wrote before. And also feel free to follow me on Twitter. Um, my Twitter token is suhui underscore io, again, S-I-H-U-I underscore io. Wonderful. All right. Well, we'd like to thank you for coming on. Um, thank I'm you so much for having me. I'm sorry the rest of the team isn't here. I'd like to thank our sponsors for helping make this podcast possible. It wouldn't be possible without you guys. And uh, thank you all for, for listening. And yeah, we'll, we'll see you. you. Talk to you next week. See you. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.